0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright
1: 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukye, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse. Could one of the brightest stars in the night sky be about to explode? The Battle for the Internet address, .org, why a group of Internet veterans is contesting the billion-dollar sale of the web domain. And accidental stampedes in overcrowded places can be deadly. But how does a crowd turn into a crush? When you look up at the night sky, how many of the stars and planets could you name? One of the brightest lights you'll be able to make out is that of Betelgeuse. But the red supergiant is starting to dim. Astronomers are asking, could the star be about to turn supernova? Alok Jaws, our science technology correspondent. Alok, first question, the most important one, how do you pronounce it?
2: Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse. One of those.
1: Well, thank you very much. I could have come (laughs) up with that answer.
2: Let's just stick with Betelgeuse.
1: Well, how do the French pronounce it?
2: Betelgeuse.
1: C'est très bien. Frisson. Okay, great. And so remind us all, what is a supernova?
2: Well, a supernova is the end state of uh, a particular type of star. So if a star is several multiples of the sun's mass, then at the end of its life, when it's run out of fuel at the centre, the core collapses and the rest of it explodes into a supernova. And a supernova is usually brighter than the rest of the galaxy combined. It's an enormous explosion.
1: So brighter than the Sun?
2: Much, much brighter. Like how many orders of magnitude? I mean, brighter than all the stars in the Milky Way.
1: So if it went supernova, when would that happen and what would we see on Earth?
2: Well, that star is a very large star and because it's huge, it's uh, running through its fuel very, very quickly. And so already it's a red supergiant, which is enormous. If you put this star at the middle of our solar system, the edges would reach out to like Mars, perhaps even Jupiter. It's enormous. So Betelgeuse's life is about 10 million years. Uh, Compare that to our star, which is much, much smaller. Uh, The Sun's got a life of 10 billion years. And whereas the sun's about halfway through its life, uh, Betelgeuse is almost at the end. So um, within the next 100,000 years, it's going to become a supernova. We just don't know when.
1: Okay, so I shouldn't really be waiting around for it.
2: Well, so in astronomical terms, the end of the end of Betelgeuse's life is very soon. But, you know, in numerical terms, that is any time between now and the next 100,000 years. Um, the fact is the star's been dimming in the last few weeks. Um, and this some astronomers, uh, amateur astronomers, and others have thought to themselves, is this a sign that Betelgeuse is about to collapse? Uh, and, and it if could it happen. Does, and if it does, what will we see? Well, if it does collapse, you would see an almighty explosion. It would be as I said, the brightest thing in the sky for several weeks.
1: Now, if it's so far away, then it has been dimming you know, years ago.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the Betelgeuse is 600 light years away from us in the constellation of Orion. And so if anything has actually happened, if, if it's become a supernova, it would have happened 600 years ago and the light's just reaching us now, which is, you know, incredible. And if it did happen, if it, if it was a supernova next week, let's say we found out, then you'd have an object in the sky that's as bright as the, as the full moon. You'd see it in daytime, it would cast shadows on the ground, it would be quite spectacular.
1: That's fantastic. And is there any danger to us though?
2: No. Oh, it's too far away. So um, a supernova would have to be much closer than that to be dangerous. Plus also, the Betelgeuse will, won't produce the kind of explosion that um, is the most dangerous one. So, for example, some very, very massive stars will um, explode into supernova and then create black holes in the middle. And Quite they right. release gamma rays, uh, which are the high-intensity electromagnetic radiation. And this is not that kind of star. It won't do that sort of explosion. Uh, plus, it's also too far away. You'd you need to be about 300 uh, light-years away for effects on Earth. I mean, not to say that in the history of the Earth there haven't been supernovae that close and caused all sorts of problems, but Betelgeuse will just be a really spectacular sight, not only for uh, us looking up from the ground, but, but amateur uh, people, but, but professional astronomers would be absolutely over the moon, if I can mix my metaphors, to um, see one of these, because we've not seen a supernova happen in our lifetime.
1: What might it teach us? What would we hope to learn?
2: So if we could uh, look at Betelgeuse before during and after a supernova and train all the world's high-quality telescopes, optical telescopes, um, infrared telescopes, radio wave telescopes, gravitational um, wave telescopes, uh, the neutrino observatories, if we trained all of those things on it, we'd learn a huge amount about the very final stages of a star. We know we've seen supernovas and We've recorded them over history and measured things that happened several hundred years ago, but we haven't seen one actually happen. So what happens in the middle of a star as it collapses, as it becomes a neutron star, for example, or a black hole? This is the kind of thing we discover. Um, we're starting to see some of this stuff with when, because we can detect gravitational waves now, which come from the centres of these sorts of objects. So we would learn about the end stages of stars, how black holes are created, how neutron stars are created, what's inside a neutron star. I mean... We've discussed this before on this podcast. We don't know what's inside a neutron star, some of the strangest matter in the universe. So this is the kind of thing we'd be able to see briefly as it became supernova. That's brilliant. Alak. thank you very much. You're very welcome.
1: You can read more about the fate of Betelgeuse in this week's edition of The Economist, alongside a host of other stories about the latest in science and technology. Subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. A group of internet veterans have teamed up to contest the sale of the web domain.org. Since 2003, the domain has been run by the Public Interest Registry, or PIR, which is controlled by the nonprofit called the Internet Society, known as ISOC. Late last year, it was announced that ISOC planned to sell.org to a private equity fund called Ethos Capital for over a billion dollars. Now, it's worth noting that ISOC was given control of the domain for free. Last December, I spoke to the president of ISOC, Andrew Sullivan, to find out why they made this decision.
0: Well, we, because we got a, a bid that was advantageous to us and that we thought was good for everybody else as
1: well. I mean, we took seriously, and, and I think still do take seriously, the public benefit portion of that mission, but we were also sort of dependent on the income. And one of the problems in the registry business is that because it needs investment right now, because we need new services and so on in order to make these businesses healthy, in order to make sure that the registries continue in a healthy way, uh, we were not really able to invest in it that proper way. But the deal has been met with fierce opposition. Now, a group of grandees from the non-profit world have formed a cooperative called c for Cooperative Corporation for .org Registrants, to challenge the sale and to take on the role themselves. Among the group's directors is one of the earliest leaders of the internet domain name system, Esther Dyson, and she was the first chairperson of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, known as ICANN, whose job it is to approve the sale. Esther, let's start with this. Why shouldn't .org be
3: sold to a private equity firm? It's not an asset to be sold. .org is a non-profit public interest entity, and for this transaction to go through, it needs to be turned into a for-profit, and then it becomes an asset in somebody's hands. Now, ISOC's president, Andrew Sullivan, says that the
1: sale will help domain registries operate in a healthy way, and without a sale like this... They won't have the money to keep some of the important parts of the internet running that ISOC finances. What is your response to that?
3: My response to that is, first, I don't want to get into an argument, but what the board of CCOR is asking right now is for ICANN to exercise its right to say, we delegated the thing that makes PIR valuable, that makes .org valuable, is the right to register .org names. And that's not an asset to be sold. That's a, that's basically a monopoly right that is granted by ICANN. And ICANN has the right to say, please hold on. We don't want to turn this thing into a for-profit that will become an asset in somebody's hands. The challenge is, once it's an asset in the hands of a private equity firm, that private equity firm has interests on behalf of its owners and shareholders in generating more revenue. And if they can't generate more revenue off the current business model, which is unlikely, looking at the amount they're paying for it. This thing is not an asset to be sold. It's a public trust. And it has, because it's a monopoly, you know, it needs to be governed not by the sort of normal for-profit rules. I don't know enough about ethos. This is part of the problem. This was a very sudden transaction and proposal, and fundamentally we're asking ICANN to slow down so we can discover the answers to some of these questions. So what is the alternative that CCOR is proposing? Right now, we've constructed a board that by our charter is not going to be the long-term governance structure, because we want the governance structure, basically the members to be able to vote on this. And ultimately the members should vote on what kind of governance structure they want. Our alternative is less give it to us, because us is going to disappear, it's going to become the members. Our alternative is slow down, and then let's have a reasonable discussion with the membership. Ultimately, the owners of .org is the people who pay its fees every year for the use of the domain names, which is a right granted by ICANN. And let them figure out what they want. If they want to sell this to private equity, and then each of them gets 10 dollars because there's millions of them, you know, great. But right now, the money would be going to ISOC rather than to the actual, if you like, owners or registrants of org.:
1: Now the first C and C core is the word cooperative. Why did you choose the form of a cooperative to uh,
3: be the established steward of the .org domain? Because that's what we think is the proper, you know, it should be a co-op. It should not be kind of a top-down owner. The members should be in charge. So so what are the principles behind a cooperative that is different than a corporation? A corporation tries to make money, and, you know, that's what it's there to do. And a co-op tries to serve its members who are the broader public, ultimately the registrants. And in this case, the registrants themselves are primarily and supposed to be philanthropies in the public interest. So this is very much a sort of meta public interest organization. So we don't think that the notion of a single owner, mostly focused on profit is the appropriate ownership. Now, who would be the one to technically administer it? Would you still use PIR? Or do you think that that needs to change as well? we're responding to a transaction that was suddenly announced in November but that was clearly prepared for many months in advance and so we don't have all the answers and we're not trying to disrupt things we're trying to say hold on slow down before you disrupt things but most importantly don't turn this thing into a for-profit before you've considered all the angles and the possibilities and indeed how should this cooperative be governed. That should be up, again, to the owners, not even to this board. Does ICANN have any obligation to listen to this appeal that you
1: have and to suspend the process so that it can then reflect on it? Or can they do what they like
3: to do? So those are two things. Do they have an obligation? We believe yes. Can they do what they like to do? They probably can. But we believe that to the extent that they were originally conceived to be a bottom-up organization operating in the public interest. We believe they have a firm obligation, and there is, I would say, a pretty clear statement, both in ICANN's bylaws and in the U.S. delegation, redelegation, and so forth and so on, that they're operating in the public interest and that they need to listen to the public. So what is the process now? There's a board meeting, tell us about this. I mean, in essence, if they do nothing, the staff can rubber stamp this and it can go ahead. But the board can also say, hey, we want to weigh in here because we've assigned this right that is extremely valuable. Somebody's paying a billion plus dollars for it. And maybe we should look at the situation a little more carefully and perhaps say, slow down, please. Their board meeting is next week. And so our, our basic plea is, please at least consider this as a board. And then as a board, we think they should say, hold on, we need to examine this more carefully. There may be a better way to do this. Esther, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you.
1: We all know the feeling of being in a crowd, of being carried along by the flow of people. But what determines whether a crowd is claustrophobic or catastrophic? It's an important question. Overcrowding can have fatal consequences. In Mecca in 2015, over 2,000 people were killed. And in January of this year, 56 mourners were crushed in the crowds at the funeral of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. Our correspondent Tom Burrell has been studying the science of crowds. Tom, when does a crowd turn into a more serious crush?
4: It's important to think about what we actually mean by a crowd. So if you and I in this room, Ken, we are two people, are we a crowd? We'd probably say no. So crowd scientists try and think about a crowd as how many people per square meter or, or particular amount of area. And they refer to this as crowd density. If there are two people in a square meter, we're able to move around and walk freely without each person touching the other. At three to four, occasionally we'll now start to touch each other. And when this number gets to, say, six or seven, crowd scientists think that there is some sort of nonlinear transformation that means that this situation can be particularly dangerous.
1: So tell me more about that sort of phase change from an ordinary crowd to one that becomes so dangerous.
4: The main branch of theory that looks into this is called complexity theory, which has applications across different subjects. And scientists think that at some particular density, there is this transformation between how this crowd moves. Scientists think about between six to seven people per square metre density. Those as part of the crowd no longer have control of their actions. So the crowd becomes one unit in a sense. It becomes a system rather than individual micro parts.
1: And in that context, there's small little things that can happen that will set off a problem.
4: Yes. So something that uh, is probably inconsequential when crowd densities are very small, someone tripping, a little blockade, a bottleneck. When densities are three to four people, the crowd has the agency and the ability to, to walk itself back. Whereas when we get to these six to seven densities again, even this small, tiny little effect can have dramatic consequences.
1: Is this a uniquely human problem?
4: In other natural species, they have evolved in order to deal with different bits of these phenomena. So when ants, for example, an ant colony gets into a crowd or difficulties, the ants have evolved to have the ability to communicate across the colony through pheromones. So those at the front of the crowd can tell those at the back that they are in trouble and those at the back can move themselves to stop creating that difficulty in the crowd. So why can't humans do that? It seems as though that whilst human beings have evolved to cooperate in huge, huge numbers, we haven't done that as crowds because we've not needed to. The sorts of reasons why you would need to communicate in a crowd didn't exist back then. You didn't have buildings, you didn't have bottlenecks, all the sorts of things that create actual danger crowds at those particular times. They're a new phenomena. So we haven't built these evolutionary characteristics that would have provided benefit at that time.
1: So what can we do about it now?
4: The easiest thing to do is to reduce the number of people. Therefore, you don't get a crowd or you could increase the area. But, of course, as social beings, we often don't want to do either of those things. One of the classic examples is at Mecca, exactly, when there are set rituals and rules that require individuals to be in large groups. So once we recognise that sometimes these dangerous crowds will exist, the next thing is to say, what can we do to mitigate that? Well, it's understanding more the dynamics of these crowd. What is a dangerous density? It's knowing that when these densities reach this level, we're at a risk point and particular factors become dangerous. Bottlenecks, people tripping. So crowd managers recognising this, looking out for it and cultivate an identity in the crowd such that people realise that their actions at the back can affect those at the front.
1: Tom, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi,
0: this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. To learn more, what would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.